Well, good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all here today. Uh, before we get started here, would you, um, would you pray with me? Lord, we're so thankful for today. For every uh, day is a gift from you, and we're so thankful that we get to gather here this morning as the people of God to worship you and to hear from you. We pray right now that as we open your word, that you would speak to us. Lord, that you would help us to understand, that you would guide us and give us direction. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, next Sunday, uh, March 14th, uh, we're all going to be uh, springing forward, right? Springing forward. You know, this wonderful moment where we get to put our clocks forward an hour. I love falling back because we gain an hour of sleep. Next week, just a heads up reminder, you all lose an hour of sleep, right? And outside of the uh, fantasy world of TVs and movies, this is probably about as close as any of us are going to get to time travel. It's going to be this, these two days a year where we put the clocks forward, put them back. But while we may not be able to literally go back in time, uh, you're familiar, though, with this concept, right? People talk about being stuck uh, in the past, right? Constantly thinking about a particular time in your life when things were better or different, dwelling in what was rather than living in what is, right? One time or another, perhaps you've all experienced that kind of yearning for the past. And especially if it was a good memory, that's maybe not a, not a bad thing. But sometimes that nostalgia for, for the past, for the way things were, can become such a heavy weight that it keeps us from truly living in the present. And in some sense, that was the, the tension that the early church was wrestling with as the gospel grew and spread through the region of Galatia. For non-Jewish people, the Gentiles in Galatia at that time, with little or no background in what we would call the Old Testament, the gospel, it was simply good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And the, the questions that they had really revolved around, well, what is the relationship between this good news and the idolatry around me, the, 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 the pagan worship I may still be battling with in my own life? But things were a lot more complicated for Jewish believers in Jesus because their lives had always been dominated by and guided by the law. And so the arrival of the Messiah raised all kinds of questions concerning God's plan of redemption and the relationship between this, sort of, this old covenant, as we talk about it, and, and this new covenant in Christ. And in Galatia, apparently, the answer seemed to be clear for these Jewish believers. Even if Jesus was the path to salvation... Strict observance of the law was still required for all believers. That's what some of these, these false teachers were, were uh, harassing and bothering the Galatian Christians with this. Trying to teach them that it wasn't Christ alone, but Christ plus the Torah. They had a deep and understandably strong desire to hold on to the law as law, as legally binding on all believers. 
But Paul's concern was that this grip on the past was actually keeping them from grasping the fullness of their new life in Christ. And so in his letter, he's trying to tease apart this relationship between the law and the promise in order to set them free to follow Jesus through the power of the Spirit. So all of that's the setting for our passage this week. And I'm going to tell you up front, this sectioning in Galatians, it's, it's complex. It's not intuitive. You don't just sort of zip through it and go, oh, okay, that's perfectly clear right now. But I think as we go through this slowly, verse by verse, it will make sense as the pieces come together. And essentially here, Paul is addressing the relationship between law and promise, defining roles for each one and clarifying their purposes in the larger story of redemption. And his main point is going to be this. The Christians receive the inheritance promised to Abraham, not through the law, but through the gracious gift of Jesus Christ. Like I said, this, this, so we're going to be looking here in Galatians 3. If you want to open up your Bibles at Galatians 3, starting in verse 15. We're going to look at verses 15 through 22. And this section from 15 through 22 really breaks down into to two big chunks with a different focus in each. This first section, verses 15 to 18, He's going to talk a lot about the promise. We're going to talk about that first. The second section, verses 19 through 22, he's going to talk about the law. So starting in this first section, the promise, when you look here at verse 15, Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it, once it has been ratified. Now, uh, does anyone in here know who Ed Hedrick was? There's a big hint on the screen here. <laughs> nope. He invented the Frisbee. Ed Hedrick, he's the guy who invented the Frisbee. World War II veteran. He was apparently a, a deep sea welder. I have no idea what how that works. <laughs> but this guy invented... The Frisbee. And he was so passionate about this game that after he died, he stipulated in his will that his ashes were to be incorporated into a special limited edition run of Frisbees. (laughs) This is not a joke. This is real. It's It's in his will. I want you to... I want to be cremated and and you're going to put my ashes into a special limited edition run of Frisbees and these will then be handed out to my my friends and my family members, my grandchildren. And then any extras can be sold and the money given to charity. You can go online and buy one of these creepy Frisbees (laughs) if you really want. So Ed was apparently quoted as having said once, when we die... I don't believe this, but this is what he said. When we die, we don't go to purgatory. We just land up on the roof and lay there. <laughs> and I guess if you've had yourself turned into a Frisbee, that's true. But, uh, but the point is, it didn't really matter what we think of his, his wishes, what his family thought of his wishes. 
This was in his will. And after the will, he died and the will was executed, they were legally obligated to follow through on his desires. I know there are probably some lawyers out there are like, yes, but Jonathan, we contest wills all the time and there are legal loopholes, blah, blah, blah. Sure. I get that when there's large amounts of money involved, there's always someone who's going to contest the will. But essentially, for the most part, with a well-written will, once it's been executed, there's no turning back. That's how dogs end up inheriting $12 million. For, you know, and you've heard, or people end up getting buried in a Ferrari or something crazy like that. You may not like it, but that's what happens. And essentially, it's what Paul's point is here. He's not saying that the human wills can't ever be adjusted. But that if a mere human will, last will and testament, is next to impossible to change, how much more so than for a covenant that's been enacted by God himself? Right? If a human will can't be changed, except under the most extreme circumstances, how much more so for a will that was put in place, established by God himself? Nobody could disagree with that, right? Well, what's he getting at? Well, let's move on. We'll look at the next verse here. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now why does this verse sound so awkward? Well, first of all, because nobody in English says, and to offsprings. It's not a, a word, I don't think. In English, the word me, offspring means you have one kid, you have offspring. If you have 15 children, you have offspring. It's the same word, right? Now, if you have the NASB or the NIV, I think it probably says seed and seeds, which sounds less awkward, but... You know, if you're thinking like in biblical terms, like, oh, this land is for my seed. Uh, you, you wouldn't say necessarily, this is land is for my seeds. Like if you're talking about your children. You're talking about a packet of seeds, maybe. But he says you would say, this land is, is for my, my seed, my children, my offspring. And the same thing is true in Greek, and the same thing is true in Hebrew. Whatever language is used, in every case, the word is singular in form, even if it's referring to multiple people, to plural people, more than one specific descendant. So what's going on here? What on earth is Paul talking about? He's making a reference here to the promises made to Abraham and then reiterated to Isaac and Jacob all through Genesis, right? Genesis 12, 13, 14, 17, 22, 24. Just two examples here on the screen. God promises for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And again in Genesis 17, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. So who is he talking about? God is obviously, first of all, talking about Abraham's seed, his offspring, Isaac, the miraculous child of promise. Isaac versus Ishmael. Like Abraham had more than one son, but the promise, the seed, 
was going to go through Isaac, right? And the same uh, later on. Uh, uh, Jacob will be the recipient of this prom- promise, not Esau, Judah, not Reuben, or Simeon, or Levi, or even Joseph. Right? Singular, specific, chosen offspring. But at the same time, the promise was not that limited. God also promised Abraham that the seed, this this offspring, will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Right? As many as the stars are in the sky. God was also talking about this vast nation of people he would make for himself out of the one man, Abraham. The people who would multiply greatly in the land of Egypt. The land that they would inherit, the blessings of his presence. So the first part of this verse would have fit perfectly with his opponent's understanding of Scripture, right? They've been tracking right along with him. Yes, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, the Jewish people. Well, this was true, but it was incomplete. It was true, but it was incomplete. And it's in the second half of the verse where Paul begins to to expand his argument here. Because in this context, Paul wants to emphasize that the deeper meaning of that promise to Abraham... It was ultimately, it wasn't Isaac, singular, or, or even the people of Israel, plural, but the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. You see, the, the line Paul draws takes us back even further in the Bible, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, and, and the promise that one day the seed, the, the offspring of the woman would defeat Satan. And we did a longer message on that last May. If you want to go back and listen to that, you can. But for now, I just want you to see that Paul draws on that promise. And he then traces this line, right? Through, uh, from Eve, through Abraham and Isaac. And then, and then he's envisioning through, through those promises made to David, right? That his offspring would inherit the throne forever. All the way down to Christ, That's Paul's conclusion at the very end of verse 16. So I don't want you to get distracted here by Paul's grammar. Maybe it would help if I paraphrase this here. He's basically saying, look, I want you to see that something new has happened here. We've always thought of the seed as being plural, referring to the people of Israel, and the promise as being the land of Canaan. And that's true, but, but the seed, in its deepest sense, really refers to Jesus. In fact, it's even better than that, because it's in and through that singular seed, Jesus, that the promise will now be extended even further than we could ever have imagined. Because it's in and through Jesus that all the nations of the world will be blessed in fulfillment of that promise that God made to Abraham. In other words, the promise is no longer limited in scope to to a particular people living in in a particular place geographically on earth, but now offered to all people dwelling in Jesus Christ himself. 
That, that's how you and I get to experience the blessings of God. That's how the non-Jewish Galatians got to experience the blessings of God through the promise. Not through the law, but, but through the fulfillment of the promises of God in Jesus Christ. Now why does this matter for the Galatians? Look at the next verse, verse 17. Paul continues, This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now there's no questioning the significant role the law played in the lives of the Jewish people at the time of Jesus. And later in this letter, Paul is going to draw out and emphasize the uh, uh, ethical and the moral commands of Scripture that Christians are still obligated to obey today. But his point here in this verse is that as a covenant, as a covenant, the Mosaic law coming so long, 430 years after the promise, was powerless to change or, or to annul what God had already established. For 430 years, the patriarchs lived without the law. They lived in light of God's gracious promises. In fact, as Paul argues in verse 18, if the law was the, was the true way to receive the inheritance, if the law was the true way to receive the inheritance by doing all this stuff, then that would have negated the promise. I mean, the promise was irrelevant. But, as Paul concludes, that cannot be. Because God himself made this promise to Abraham. God was the one who, who secured it. Like we said at the beginning, you can't go back and undo what God has already established. I know this is, <laughs> this is dense material, but I want you to grab a hold of two key truths coming out of this. First, the Bible is not a textbook. Okay, it's not a user manual that we turn to to draw out information at will. Like I have a Bible dictionary at home. It's fantastic. It's super useful, very helpful. And I can pretty much just dig through there at random because there's no, there's no plot line for a dictionary, right? It's organized alphabetically, but there's no story arc. There's no climax. The, the articles don't build towards anything. But the Bible has to be read differently. On the one hand, each component part has, has specific historical and grammatical and cultural context that we have to be careful to examine and to unpack but at the same time, we have to recognize that they're all part of this larger narrative, a story of redemption that has Jesus at its center. As a professor of biblical theology, Graham Goldsworthy, 
He puts it this way. He says, the meaning of all the scriptures is unlocked by the death and resurrection of Jesus. He says, the meaning of all the scriptures is unlocked by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not in some sort of forced, wooden way that erases all the unique elements of each passage of Scripture, but in the deeper sense that the ultimate meaning and purpose of the entire book only comes to light as a result of the pinnacle moment, the death and resurrection of Christ. Now this isn't just some obscure theology. This, this is intensely practical for all of us. Because understanding this helps us to read and understand. I mean, the Bible is an enormous book. And we need to have this framework to help us understand it. For example, the, uh, the, the sacrifices in Leviticus, they're strange. They're confusing. They're, they're different for us today. We have nothing like that in our world. But they're important to understand because they lay the foundation for making sense of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, as the book of Hebrews makes clear. This is a story. The Bible is a story that's going somewhere. And the scriptures truly come to life when we begin to see how they fit together and how their focal point is in Jesus himself. So, first, it affects how we read the scriptures. But secondly, the reason this promise is so important is because practically speaking, if what Paul says here is true, then as a Christian, you've hit the jackpot. You've hit the jackpot. Not not materially or financially, but spiritually and eternally. If you've inherited this promise, then then that means your life has been given meaning and purpose and significance and direction. In Christ, you now have everything. Everything. Everything that you need to follow Him faithfully. You don't need land. You don't need a temple. You don't need a priest. All the available resources have been given to you for facing all the possible challenges you may face in life and for leading a life that brings glory and honor to God. Remember what Paul said in verse uh, 14? Uh, He says, the gift of the Spirit. It's not some afterthought to faith, like some kind of optional add-on. But it's the very essence of salvation. And the Holy Spirit then brings us power for living. So how does this play out practically? What does that inheritance look like? Well, this gift of the Holy Spirit equips us in our daily life. Like we talked about a few weeks ago, look, if your marriage needs help The Bible has tons to say about marriage. You can pray directly and ask for the Holy Spirit to help you and give you wisdom and strength and perseverance and patience. And the promise is secure that He is with you and will help you. 
Moreover, we can sit with you as pastors and talk through the key passages in Scripture and draw out helpful truths about marriage and apply them to your situation because the promise is secure that He will give us wisdom and understanding. And there are Christian authors whom God has gifted with insight and wisdom from the Bible about relationships and communication. There are Christian counselors who are trained and equipped to help walk you through more serious and substantial issues. We even have a marriage conference coming up in a few weeks' time to help strengthen and encourage our marriages. And the same support structures, all of them, are available for parenting or for addiction help or for financial help or guidance about jobs or schools and so on. All of these resources are now yours in Christ, not as a suite of offerings that we offer as a church, but as an inheritance that we receive from Christ. And all of that is just a tiny, a tiny earthly sliver It's the inheritance that is itself still just a foretaste of the final and the complete inheritance that awaits us still in the new heavens and the new earth. All of it promised and secured through the gracious gift of God himself. So Paul says all of that has been secured and established and now fulfilled in and through Christ and given to us, sealed by the Spirit. The promise can never be uh, removed or added to by the law. But as I said at the beginning, this is a two-part section, uh, a sermon, and the second section, verses 19 through 22, Paul is now going to address, well, what role then do we have for the law? Right? It seems like he's painted himself into a corner here. Like Paul is, is doing exactly what the, the other teachers have been accusing him of doing, of dismissing the, uh, uh, God's word. But that's not at all what he's trying to do. Look with me at, at verse 19. Paul says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Slow down. We're going to get to the weird parts. Verse 19 first, the very first clause. Why then the law? That's the key question he's trying to answer. And we don't have a complete, systematic unpacking of all the potential reasons and purposes for the law here in Galatians. We'd have to look at Romans and the the rest of the New Testament. But a couple of key points. First, Paul says the law was added because of transgressions. Now what does that mean? I think for Paul, probably... A combination of ideas are coming together here. He could mean that there was so much sin that the law had to be put in place to restrain it. Kind of like a, like a leash on a dog, like holding it back, keeping it in check. Paul also might be talking about the fact that the law was necessary in order to name sin and define it as being contrary to God's law. So uh, you think about like a home inspector 
coming to our house and going through and identifying on paper all the things that are wrong and need to be fixed. He's not creating those problems, right? They already exist, but now they've been identified as being in violation uh, of the law, of the housing code, or whatever it is. Now they cannot be ignored, and if they are not fixed or dealt with, there's going to be specific punishments. So in this sense, the law, if you will, shines a light to identify generic sin as being very specifically a transgression of God's law. Now along those lines, Paul might also mean here that the law, in providing specific consequences and boundaries for behavior, did in a sort of limited sense deal with with sin, not in an ultimate sense, but at least in a in, in a short-term manner by, by sort of providing a means for restitution for theft, for example. There were consequences for sin. And of course, the law also does seem to increase sin in some way. Every, anytime I read that, I think I sort of bristle at this idea of the law increasing sin. But think about it. If I said, you know, don't look over there. What's the first thing everyone does? They, they all look over there. And in our homes, probably most of us experience this with our kids, right? It's almost like the very moment that you institute a new rule that your kids are like, oh, I didn't know I was supposed, not supposed to do that. <laughs> and quickly rush to, to, to want to break it. And I think Paul has, has all of these, elements of all these ideas in mind. But as an illustration, uh, I want to share a story about our neighbor. He has a raised bed in his backyard. And he grows all kinds of vegetables and plants back there. It's going to be fantastic later this year. But I know that now the snow is gone, pretty soon he's going to be out there digging up the dirt, right? He's going to be clearing the beds, getting out those old woody roots, getting rid of the garbage that's accumulated over the winter, tilling the soil, getting it ready for planting the seeds. And the language Paul uses here, he talks about the law in a similar manner. It had this preparatory effect on us. It tilled the soil of the human heart, turning it over, knocking out the clumps, making us aware of sin and rebellion, identifying our selfishness, our idolatry, and thereby pointing out our deep need for a Savior. The law was busy preparing our hearts for the Messiah and the gift of His Spirit. And in this sense, the law was something good, something necessary, since it helped prepare the way for the reception of the promise And indeed, the law continues to work in that way today, tilling hearts, pointing out sin, revealing transgression, a a, a raising in us an awareness of our need for a Savior. So Paul doesn't cancel the law here. He just wants to make sure that we set it in the right context. It was temporary, only added until the offspring should come. Meaning it was never supposed to, it was never opposed to the promise, but served a role in conjunction with the promise. 
Now in the rest of this verse, he, he's, he's talking about angels and intermediaries and, and, and what on earth is going on here. here maybe this will help. Put in place through angels by an intermediary. You know, my dad used to be a lawyer, corporate attorney, working with, with mergers and contracts and all this kind of stuff. And so let's say you have two companies trying to figure out how to, how to partner together, two huge companies. Now the CEOs, they might talk a little bit, but, but essentially this guy's going to talk to his lawyers and his lawyers are going to work out all these huge contracts and then these lawyers are going to go over here and they're going to talk to the lawyers at the other company and they're going to go back and forth and they're going to take their report over to the board and the board's going to offer suggestions, come back to the lawyer. And it's this huge process. All these people involved, dozens uh, of emails and masses amounts of paper. And the giving of the law, Paul says, at Sinai was in some sense a little bit like this. God didn't speak directly to the people at Sinai. Right? He spoke to Moses, who then took the law down to the people. And not just that, but there were these angels involved. We don't have that in the Pentateuch, but, but in Psalm 68, there's an allusion to this. Stephen talks about the angels being involved in this process in Acts 7, and, and we read about it in Hebrews 2. Not that the angels were giving the law. God gave the law. It didn't come from angels. But the angels were there. They were functioning as messengers, or in some sense, working as intermediaries along with Moses. But the point of all this, Paul says, is that an intermediary implies more than one. More than one person. It's a shorthand way of describing the fact that in the Mosaic Covenant, you had all these different parties. God, Moses, the people, angels. But when God made the promises to Abraham, it was a one-way covenant directly with Abraham. God, Abraham. No middlemen, no angels, no tablets. Just God telling, rather promising, Abraham what he would do. Therefore, Paul's saying, this promise to Abraham was more important, more significant than the law with all its mediation however important that may be and whatever role that it still played in the life of God's people. But that leads to another question. Verse 21. Paul says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Because you might begin to think that way. I've been emphasizing promise, 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 promise so much. You can just hear his opponent saying, Well, so are you saying it's opposed to the promises of God? And Paul says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul wants to be super clear as he finishes this section. The law and the promise, they're not enemies. They're not opposed to each other. They just have different purposes, different roles, different functions. 
And in the grand storyline of Scripture, the crucial point for the Galatians was that the law primarily served a preparatory role for the promise. The law prepared the way for Jesus. Going back to the the gardening illustration, wrapping us up here, the gardening illustration. Think about it. The law was intended to till the soil of our hearts in preparation for the seed of faith. And the gift of salvation then is like that seed coming to life and putting down roots and bearing fruit. Why? In that case, when all that growth is happening, why would you then go back and retill the soil all over again, uprooting the new plant, effectively starting from scratch? That would make no sense, right? It served an important purpose, and that purpose is now bearing incredible fruit. So why would you then go back and be like, well, let's do that all over again? And yet, I wonder what might be some of the ways in which we do that very thing in our own lives. We're not thinking, oh, yes, I'm going to set the promise to one side and I'm going to embrace the law once again. But essentially, we're doing that. Perhaps when we seek to earn God's favor through our good behavior or extra effort. Or when we try to prove our, our value to other people, looking for significance in their opinions of us rather than resting in our true identity in Christ. Or maybe this happens when when piety becomes more about displaying our virtue to others than a way to commune more deeply with God. Whatever it may be for you, here's the thing. The law is not bad, But God has released us from that burden and wants us to live in light of the inheritance that we have obtained through faith in Christ alone. Which means you and I are heirs of the promise. A gift that is given freely and irrevocably to all those who believe. May we rest and take comfort in that truth this week. Lord, we're so thankful for the law that revealed our need for a Savior and thankful for the promise secured through Jesus Christ. Lord, that we have received now through your Holy Spirit empowering us to live faithfully for you, to bear fruit in your kingdom, to rest secure in our salvation, confidence of this inheritance we have in and through your Son, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.